we'll take about 10 minutes to do some questions that you've submitted. And uh, it's like we're going to argue. This is good. Um, <laughs> got some good questions. It's almost very political here. That's right. Yeah. Some good questions from everybody. Maybe my, my question just to start would be, you mentioned compromise in the common kingdom. Is that one of the reasons why the church would be careful to not be in politics? Because then they compromise? Um, no, well, that's not really the way I would put it. I mean, I think, I mean, there can be compromise in the church as well. I mean, so it's not as if this is unique to the common kingdom or to political life. Um, what family is there that doesn't make compromises, you know, I mean, with each other even. But I, I, I would say that the, 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 real, the real burden of my concern about the church not getting involved into politics actually does get to this point of respecting each other's Christian liberty and that what the church is... What the church is called to do uh, is to proclaim the word of God. Politics always involves more than that. It always involves questions of application. It always involves what I was just referring to as judgment calls. So if you take abortion, should the church say anything about abortion. Well, yes, I think the church should say something about abortion. I think the church needs to be teaching the moral evil of abortion. If you're preaching Psalm 139, for example, wonderful opportunity to talk about the value of unborn human life, for example. Um, but as the church proclaims the word of God, it doesn't have authority to say, here's how you put that conviction about abortion, this is how it plays out in the ballot box. That here's how you have to vote, therefore. Here's how you have to promote pro-life causes. Here is how exactly the strategy that you're going to promote if you're in the state legislature. That's going beyond the scriptures. Okay. And so I think that the, the, the church has to leave individual Christians with the freedom, the Christian liberty, to make calls about those things. We, we as ministers of the gospel can't lord it over others' consciences. The only thing I can say as a minister of the gospel to people is what the word of God says. And application is up to them and their conscience. And Application that goes beyond the yes, word of God yes, uh, is something that they're going to... We, we, we who are pastors can help them think through these things. But we can't lord it over their consciences. And I think whenever we try to play politics as a church, we're stepping beyond those, those biblical bounds. Transitioning but somewhat related would be um, one kingdom, crusades. What did that look like? Is there anything we can learn from that? You're talking about like in the Middle Ages? Yes. Yeah, um, I think there's... The assumption of the question is that was a one kingdom kind of model. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think there were, I mean, there are also, I think there are a number of, uh, a number of things we can learn, a number of problems that, uh, you know, as we think about the, the medieval church, uh, for one thing, taking up arms. Uh, the church preaching sermons to build up, to take up arms on behalf of Christ. Show me in the New Testament where the church is commanded to take up arms on behalf of the gospel. But the government was bearing the sword because the government and the church were together, right? Well, uh, that's right. Uh, the, the church, in a sense, was 
sorry about the imagery, in bed with the civil government. Yeah. And, but, and so that, that leads to another problem is that, the, the, in a sense, the medieval Christians there were seeking, they were looking at a particular piece of geography as their own to reclaim that plot of ground as Christian ground. They were a Christian nation? <laughs> Where in the New Testament is the church called to look at a particular piece of real estate you know, as, in a sense, their own, a place to exercise political power. Um, so, and I think also there is the idea that, I mean, what was, it was basically a crusade of Christianity against Islam. Right. Now, do we have, are we called as Christians to oppose Islam in a sense? Yes. We preach the gospel, we defend the claims of the gospel to, to Muslims. But boy, you read the New Testament and, are we to consider them our enemies? Well, if, if we do, we're to love them, right? We're to um, that. I'd say we're not supposed to look at Muslims as our enemies. We're supposed to look at them as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have good news for them. We have good news for them. And even if they don't want to believe the good news, we're still called to love to love all of our neighbors, to do good for them, even if they don't do good back to us. And so the whole idea of taking up the weapons of this world in the name of Christ, to think that we advance the kingdom of Christ by the physical sword, I think is getting things, is, is getting things really backwards. We've been given the keys of the kingdom. We've been given the word of God. That, that, that is our sword, and that's what we should have exercised. Someone asked a question related to that about uh, how to read the Bible as far as you, you do see, you could have proof texts from the Bible that would seem to say, I read this Old Testament passage, and, and we do kill the unbeliever. Yeah. Um, the, the question basically gets at, it seems like you're calling for a, a unique and careful way of reading the, a careful way of reading the Bible. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I think that's, that's a good observation. Uh, I, I assume this person is asking about, you know, the stories in the Old Testament about Israel going into the promised land and Israel slaughtering the Canaanites. Israel's and, a nation. Are we yeah, a nation? What's yeah. the difference? Yeah, and there, I mean, those, these get into to really big issues, but I think it is very important. I made some mention of this in my second lecture, that God was doing some really unique things when he established Israel, and he was really setting apart the nation, the nation of Israel living in the land of Canaan as a sort of a picture of what heaven was supposed to be setting aside a, a people who were supposed to be purified from this world in the sense that geographically separated from this world, um, a, a, a confessional nation. And even though the story of Israel takes up the majority of our Bible, it's important to remember that that is actually an interlude of history. It's not the main action line in history. In Galatians 3, Paul explains how God made the covenant with Abraham he added the law of Moses for a time to prepare God's people for Christ's coming. But now that Christ has come, that old has, has passed away, and now the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in, in uh, the church and its work. So I think it's really important that we don't assume that those regulation, all those regulations given to Israel apply to us as the New Testament church or apply to contemporary nation states. Uh, both the church and the state today are something other than what Israel was. Israel was a holy theocracy 
which God established for particular purposes. And uh, we, we need to be very careful about just taking those things and applying the regulations to church or state today. Because we could easily be biblical with all kinds of proof texts and do all kinds of things. Context, context, context kind of thing, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, there is, and this is one of the advantages of recognizing the biblical covenants in that uh, it's the same God, it's the same moral law, but in different situations, in different contexts, uh, God applies that law in, in different ways. He doesn't apply his moral law in the church the same way he does in the state. I mean, think about the comparison of the state's justice and the church discipline, which I was talking right, about. Right. I think that's a good example of how uh, we need to be very careful of the context in which we're talking about. And you made several references to ghettos. What do you mean by a Christian ghetto? Abraham didn't start a ghetto. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, maybe, yeah, I can see that maybe that wasn't immediately clear. That, that this is... Uh, Back in the, if you think back to uh, uh, World War II, uh, what the Nazis did to Jews in their own bounds or in Poland, they established ghettos. Um, I mean, they're, 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 well, they didn't just establish. There, there, there were often Jewish ghettos before then, and then the Nazis often they would would seal these off. And what we kind of refer to there is, is sort of the idea of a certain people establishing their own their own neighborhoods, their own networks, their own way of life as a sort of an island within a broader, okay. a broader culture. So what would a so, Christian ghetto look like? So I would say, when I say don't establish a Christian ghetto, we don't, we, Christians don't get together and choose a plot of land in the greater Omaha area and say, now this is where we Christians are going to live. We don't just start businesses and say, okay, we're only going to trade with each other. Uh, we don't say, we're, you know, we're going to establish our own I use the example of health clubs. We're going to establish our own health clubs. We're going to establish our own tennis clubs. We're going to, we're, we're going to do all of these things only with each other. Uh, we're going to establish this little island of Christian, Christianity within this broader world. So what I'm suggesting is that that's not, that's not the biblical picture. In a sense, Israel in the Old Testament was a great big giant ghetto. Okay. But that was for God. That's what God commanded of them. What's interesting is that... Go ahead. But... That's not the way Abraham lived. That's not the way the, ba- the exiles in Babylon lived. And it's not, it's not the sense that we get uh, in the New Testament. Okay. God expects us to be living in the midst of unbelievers. And he wants us. He wants us to meet them. How else are we going to... How else is the gospel going to go forward sure. if we're not interacting with unbelievers, if we're not letting our light shine before men? And implied in that we're acting like strangers and aliens. We're like... Israel in that sense, right. not in the promised land. And That's right, yeah. And I mean, you know, think with it. If setting up your own ghetto is a way of saying we don't want to act like exiles and aliens. Mm-hmm. We just want our own people around us. We're going to try to yeah. make it safe. And someone has made the observation um, and wondering if a, a Christian ghetto you know, today might be, um, you know, some churches have everything. It's a one-stop church. You come yeah. and you can, they have a health club or a fitness program, yeah. coffee shop, restaurant, oil change. It's been big in the church growth movement. Yeah. You come here and you don't have to go anywhere else. Yeah. Christian ghetto? Um, I think there's a real danger in that. Uh, I, I think it, 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 it's dangerous from, from that perspective that are we trying to wall ourselves off and try to just create our own mini Christian culture? 
that sort of has a kind of an airtight kind of uh, boundaries to it. But it's also problematic in that sense that did Christ give the church authority to be doing these things? Um, and can you really do all these things and keep the center on Christ and his gospel? Because there are many good things to do that we can do out of love for neighbor, but yeah. not what the church is called to do. That's right. Okay. Someone asked the question about um, if you're a real estate agent and you're selling property that's Roman Catholic property um, or owned by them, and you're basically ordered to refer to the contact person as father, and that's against your conscience, what do you do? Yeah, I, I would... Well, the first thing I would say is you should not act against your conscience. So in that way, it maybe it's an easy question. If you really are conscientiously bound there, then you shouldn't do it. Maybe the question is, should I feel conscientiously bound? Uh, maybe I should just try to... Maybe I can try to speak generally about that sort of thing. I, I think that there are... Um, I think we have to remember first that there is nothing wrong with doing a real estate deal with Roman Catholics or with Muslims. Provided or, you make a profit. Or with atheists, as long as you make a profit. Yeah. Remember, Abraham striking a property deal with the Hittites. And I'm not sure Abraham made a profit on that. I think Abraham might have got ripped off. So, so, so some pushback to that. Yeah. Uh, help me then. I thought I wasn't supposed to do business deals and interact because Second Corinthians six says, "Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers." Yeah, uh, I think that that I would say that that has that has first and foremost the application is in the Church of Jesus Christ. I think it also we see good reason to think it also has application in whom we marry, mm-hmm. um, but. I, when, if we're looking for clarity on one part of Scripture, we looked other parts of Scripture, mm-hmm. right? First Corinthians, what Paul had already written. I think I, I made mention of this. First, Chapter 5. First Corinthians 5 is that, you know, Paul says, don't associate, you know, with, you know, don't even eat with the adulterers and idolaters and swindlers. But then he says, well, I'm not talking about the idolaters and adulterers and swindlers of this world because you have to leave the world. He's not saying you can't sit down for a business lunch with an unbeliever. Uh, he's, not, he's not saying you can't sit in an, you know, in, uh, in an office with an unbeliever. What he's saying is, is that you don't yoke yourself spiritually to the unbeliever. Uh, that we, if, if we find that there's an adulterer or an idolater or a swindler in our midst as the church, we need to deal with that. That we need to... To, to undertake that discipline uh, for the sake of the, the purity of, of Christ's body. Uh, that's how we guard ourselves about being yoked to, to unbelievers. It's not that we, uh, we can't have these kind of worldly dealings with them. It comes back to the issue of being biblical. You can proof text anything yeah. about context, big picture. It's been so helpful Comparing for Comparing scripture reason. with scripture. Scripture with scripture. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, there are more questions. I apologize if your question didn't get answered, but I fear the faithful servants working with my kids more than I fear you for not getting your question answered. 
So we um, are going to wrap things up. At 2.30, we do have uh, whatever room is in the library. We've invited leaders to come, but I'll open it up to you all if you'd like to. Um, Dr. Van Drunen is going to do a seminar on religious liberty. And so we'll take a little break. Um, we'll dismiss everybody, actually. We'll give him a little break. We'll be in the library uh, for that seminar. Uh, but all of that to say, we need to wrap up this portion of the conference. Let's thank David Van Drunen for coming and helping. <laughs> <laughs>